we hear about this in the news quite often, and it's just bounced right back. The one topic is, or the one term that we're hearing, is this word of snow washing. The other is a secrecy jurisdiction. We're talking about money laundering in Canada and some of the problems that we still face as a country right now in terms of leadership and getting some change so there isn't this degree of money laundering. Canada is not, well, we hope, will not be a safe haven for money launderers, but that's not the case right now. Matthew McGuire is a internationally recognized money laundering expert, and we have him this morning. Matthew, thanks so much for joining us. A bit of an alarm uh, from some of your words uh, this morning when it comes to this country and a lack of action. Do I have that right? You have that absolutely right, Bruce. You know, um, we're um, when we talk about snow washing, you talk about a, a brand that, that Canada has attracted around the world for the ease with which money can be laundered here and, and the lack of consequences if you do. So tell me about what's happened with Canada and how Canada got into the situation of being different than other jurisdictions and being that place where uh, consultants, they call them consultants, you're a consultant, but this is a different type of consultant, telling uh, some people that have ill-gotten means that this is the place you want to uh, park your money. How did that ever come to be? Sure. Well, well uh, Bruce, there are overt, as you say, overt advertisements uh, for laundering money in Canada in, in magazines around the world. It's one of the things Transparency called out in one of its recent reports, and there's a few reasons for it. One is that um, our corporate structures permit anonymity. They permit people to hide in the shadows behind the curtains uh, and, and to direct operations and, and to push through their ill-gotten gains for so things like buying real estate. And so uh, we have this, first of all, this vulnerability of, of uh, secrecy that, that uh, occurs in our jurisdiction. And then the next thing you have is a failure to prosecute the uh, folks who are, um, who are perpetrating these crimes. And, and even in the rare instances where we do pursue a prosecution, we uh, often fail in securing those prosecutions and in detaining and forfeiting the assets at hand. Now, Matthew, how much money are we talking about and where are we talking about this money coming from? Is it drug money? Sure. Well, you know, it's it's, uh, hard to estimate because by its nature, it's clandestine, but the the estimates that that recur are, you know, peg it at somewhere between $40 billion and $130 billion a year laundered through our economy. It used to be that much of that had to do with narcotics. That was that was the reason that many of the measures were put in place to combat money laundering in the first place. Now we're looking at everything from Ponzi schemes, securities fraud, mortgage fraud, romance schemes. Uh, all of these are crimes and even tax evasion that generate ill-gotten gains that people want to launder. Now, other jurisdictions have done something about that, uh, like Britain. Uh, tell us about Britain and what they've done that's different than this country. Oh, they have, you know, one of, one of the amazing things that they've done is, is uh, to put in place an oversight over professionals, such as um, lawyers, notaries, accountants, uh, an oversight to, look, to have them look actively for transactions that might involve uh, money laundering and, and terrorist financing. And they have a tremendous success in having as many as you know, 10 to 15,000 reports 
from those uh, from those bodies in in um, in a year about the structures they see that the suspicions that they have in Canada by contrast you know lawyers are not subject to uh, the oversight of the government when it comes to anti-money laundering and um, you know between lawyers accounts and notaries there are not even close to a dozen reports of suspicious activity in the course of a year. Matthew McGuire is an internationally recognized money laundering expert and talking with us this morning about Canada's challenges. Um, I use that word challenges uh, pretty loosely. Is there a political will in this country to do something about it? And can uh, can the rules change? Well, in the most recent budget, we've seen some uh, really good movements in the right direction. So one of the commitments that has been accelerated is the commitment to a beneficial ownership database. That means a database that's accessible by the public that will show with federal corporations who says that they own and control the corporations in this in this country federally. Uh, until that's rolled out across the provinces as well, and there's some sort of measure of verification, it doesn't mean all that much, but it's a good step in the right direction to take away that secrecy. The, the next measure that I hope is, is good news is this idea of a federal coordination entity, that they're They've allocated $2 million to plan. Um, now, the problem in, in the country, which is well-known and documented and has been the subject of House of Commons reports and Peter German's reports and Senate reports on the subject, is that you know we gather lots of intelligence and we have banks do a lot of things and we have lots of regulations, but in the end, it's a fire hose going into a garden hose. Uh, they, they, we don't have the, the law enforcement dollars to actually chase uh, the ill-gotten gains, and we don't have the prosecution, the specialized prosecution resources to be able to successfully prosecute these these crimes and detain and forfeit this money. The whole idea about this, Bruce, was that if you take the profit out of crime, then there'll be less criminals perpetrating those crimes. Now, you take the money out of the crime and uh, you get, as you say, fewer uh, criminals involved in this. But what if you take the money out of the crime? We're talking about a lot of money being parked in this country. Let's say it all disappeared or went elsewhere. Is there a negative impact on uh, on the country's economy, our country's economy, if that was to happen? Sure. I mean, listen, the, the reports have, the academic reports have shown that, that house prices are buoyed um, in Ontario and B.C. and in Montreal uh, by uh, illegal money and and so yeah it would it you know certainly would have an impact on house prices which have could have follow-on economic effects certainly and bruce Plankett filling in for mike smith this morning on your good friday before the break we were talking with matthew mcguire an internationally recognized money laundering expert also a crypto expert and i think we'll shift into talking a little bit more about that now Matthew, um, you know, we've also been talking on a larger scale about cryptocurrencies. Is that still another way that some of these large sums of money have been hidden? Absolutely. I mean, they um, they have a lot of characteristics that appeal uh, to those that would want to uh, launder and hide money, right? Many of them are designed to be private. The transactions transactions can, can be conducted um, without scrutiny, peer-to-peer, without a central body, and in many cases, they're irreversible. Uh, and so that that's of great um, importance to somebody, for example, that's committing a fraud. Well, and when you talk about cryptocurrencies, is there, because it's a whole different way of uh, looking at monies and ledgers and how things uh 
how things actually shift around. Um, is there any way that government can realistically ever manage or track cryptocurrencies? Well, great question, uh, Bruce. You know, the, um, it is an arms race in, in a lot of ways in, in that uh, every time that uh, the, the government develops a regulatory solution, uh, there are those that are, are very apt to come about um, countermeasures. And so we see, you know, apps developed by, you know, nefarious folks to tumble and mix cryptocurrency to obscure their origin. Uh, we find, you know, even um, refuge in NFTs, uh, these non-fungible tokens that, that represent art that in a whole new way um, to launder money. It is, uh, you know, we're years behind in terms of regulating the, the evolution of, of these cryptocurrencies. Is there any reason for anybody to be involved in cryptocurrencies if it's not for um, either investing and trying to make a whole lot of money or else hiding money? Oh, there, listen, I, I'm, a, I'm a big believer that there are lots of uh, incredible reasons for cryptocurrency to exist, and, and they have a great role in the economy um, going forward. Uh, it's just at, at the moment, like like traditional paper fiat currency is, um, those that um, uh, want to secret their money and want to uh, launder their ill-gotten gains will find ways to, to exploit these, these new technologies. So what's needed? How can uh, governments at all levels uh, go about and uh, take a look at changing uh, the way that they monitor, track, and penalize those using cryptocurrency for the wrong reasons? Yes, yeah, certainly. I, I think right now one of the biggest focuses has to be a coordinated, um, you know, intergovernmental approach on ransomware. That, that to me is um, one of the worst um, exploitations of cryptocurrency and represents huge dollars. And it's not the problem with those cryptocurrency ransomware scams isn't uh, just the the financial impact it has on the victims, but also that much of it has been seen to be funding. Uh, sanctioned jurisdictions. So uh, just yesterday, the U.S. government found $550 million uh, worth of ransom transactions that were headed towards North Korea. Uh, and so, you know, the, the, the um, I think a crackdown on, on ransomware coordinated effort um, and, and increased resources at the government level of, um, you know, civilian folks who are experts in cryptocurrencies and, and monitoring and tracking uh, these cryptocurrencies, I, I think, is well needed. And that's part of your business, too, is uh, some of the expert advice coming in, of course. Is that what the government has to rely on now, or do they have their own uh, staff that are uh, doing this? Or are we um, in Canada maybe too small or too behind? Well, you know, a few of the police forces that I know of in Canada have um, uh, the beginnings of, of good resources. You know, the RCMP has a few folks in their cryptocurrency division now, and um, so too, uh, you know, the uh, Toronto Police and, and um, uh, Ontario Police Services. But, you know, these, these are in their infancies. When you look at, you know, um, this it's a David and Goliath sort of scenario. There's lots of folks involved day-to-day in cryptocurrency in the private sector and very few in, in, the, law for, in the law enforcement side. Matthew McGuire, thank you so much for uh, joining us, an internationally recognized money laundering and crypto expert, talking a little bit about the challenges that this country has been facing in terms of uh, really regulating and uh, cutting down on both money laundering, uh, getting rid of this idea that we are, as a country, a secret jurisdiction, 
with snow washing where money can be hidden and uh, can be laundered quite easily from ill-gotten means. And also uh, for a look at cryptocurrency and some of the challenges there. Bruce Clackett in for Mike Smith on your Good Friday. A lot of us are heading out of town this weekend. Myself, I'm also going to be doing that heading up on Highway 3. Whether you're taking uh, the Fraser Canyon, the Coquihalla, Highway 3, or some of the other routes around the province this holiday weekend, it's interesting to note that um, despite it being April 15th and this holiday weekend coming a little later than uh, most years, uh, the winter driving season has not ended. And I must say, Josh Smythe, BCAA winter driving expert with us. Josh, um, you know, in years in the past, I uh, kind of thought that the winter driving season would end in March. I remember the rules changing for winter tires to the end of April and thinking at the time of the change, you don't really think there's going to be snow April 30th or in April, do you? But that's, uh, that is a reality, isn't it? Well, absolutely. You know, we never know how the weather can change. But, you know, winter tires isn't necessarily about the snow. It's about the cold. You know, so if it's, um, you know, seven degrees or below, your your winter tires are going to be more effective than your summer tires. Well, even before we get into talking about uh, the mountain passes, uh, mm-hmm. this, this morning uh, when I got up, it was right at the freezing mark. And that's in Surrey. And I'm not that high up in Surrey, a little bit high mm-hmm. up. I'm on a hill. But uh, that's winter driving or winter tire weather, isn't it? Absolutely, absolutely. Cold is cold. And, uh, you know, we need to be safe on the road. So seven degrees is the the magic number when it comes to tires, no matter whether it's snow or not. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about the difference in tires here. Um, Because there is, uh, when it comes to braking, I know that there is a whole different deal with winter tires. uh, And that's part of the safety feature of your car, or at least uh, that's what I'm told. Is that just a sell job or is it really the case? Oh, yeah, definitely braking is important. Uh, And your tires is what gives you the, the traction to the road. So you know, if if you need to stop in an emergency situation, uh, your your best traction is the best outcome. Best traction is the best outcome, but when it comes to those tires, what are the different mm-hmm. levels? So there, uh, you've got what summer tires, all season winter tires. Uh, I mean, this is confusing. Uh, not not even getting into the price of tires, and you know, minimum you're looking at about five hundred dollars for a small car, right up into your thousands for trucks. So, what's the difference uh, in the different tires and the categories and what they can do? Well, generally speaking, the difference in the tires is the way the sipes are or the treads, if you will. Um, winter tires, water tires, they generally have larger sipes, and the way they're cut into the rubber helps it to displace the snow so you get best contact to the road. Summer tire sites are very uh, um, a lot thinner, a little bit more narrow, so it gives you more rubber to the road as opposed to a winter tire or, let's say, um, mud and snow tire. They'll have larger sites or the space in between the treads, which will allow the displacement a little bit better. And then moving up from there to a winter tire as opposed to a mud and snow tire, a full-on ice tire or a snow tire, these sites are much larger, and often there, there could be studs in those tires as well for traction. 
take the studs out, we know that studs are uh, are pretty bad for the roads, mm-hmm. um, and, and you can get a fine for it, and a pretty steep fine. I remember that from being a young driver in my 20s. Uh, I had studs in the tires uh, going up skiing on one of the local mountains. Got a ticket uh, in North Vancouver for having studded tires just after the time where you're allowed to have them. But mm-hmm. all that aside... Um, do you really have to – why is it they have to get rid of your uh, winter tires in the summer? What's the problem there? Well, just like the 7 degrees allows your winter tires to grip the road better because your summer tires are hotter, it is the opposite side of that coin. So what happens to your, your winter tires in the summer is they become very, very soft, and you wear out of your winter tire a lot quicker. These, these are not um, the, the, the hardest rubber for the road when the temperatures are above 7 degrees. So you go through a lot of wear. And then, of course, because the softer tire, you don't have that as good attraction as you would if you had a little bit of a firmer rubber holding the road as opposed to a softer tire allowing flexibility to give you a little bit more um, slide in an aggressive stop. This weekend, I think, is a prime example of this, Josh, and uh, you can go in one drive from uh, the lower mainland into uh, the Okanagan or the Thompson-Nicola, and you could probably find a lot of uh, different driving conditions, different temperatures. In fact, I wouldn't be surprised if uh, today what started off as a at-the-freezing-level for driving uh, could end up for me being right into close to... Um, you know, your upper teens, almost 20 degrees uh, Mm -hmm. later on today or into the weekend in the Okanagan. Um, How does somebody deal with that if they're driving around in a car? Uh, Is it a compromised tire? Is there such a thing? Well, this is generally where all seasons come into into play. Now, I, I don't like to call it all seasons because they're not really for winter. They're more for all seasons in California, if you will. So, it's all weather is the best way I can describe them. So if you, if you have a little bit of snow, a little bit of cold, or a little bit of heat, the all seasons are a general purpose tire for this kind of thing. But if you find yourself up, you know, maybe in the interior where it's a little bit colder, a little bit more longer, uh, and, and, and a good potential of snow, you might be better off just leaving your winters on. Now, those all-season or all-weather, uh, sometimes it's hard to know whether you've got those tires, whether they're legal for the road. Uh, myself, I think I've got some sort of all-season tires on there. I don't know. Um, I'm, I've am i got the gut feeling that uh, I can't go up to the interior legally right now with those tires, and that's mm-hmm. why we're jumping in the wife's car. Um, mm-hmm. But what is the way to tell? What's on the side that you should be looking for? Isn't there a symbol? Yeah, there's a M and S, so that's for mud and snow, and it usually has a little bit of a mountain range symbol that this M and S sits into, and you can find the symbol on the sidewall of the vehicle or the sidewall of the tire. And without that, you can get a ticket even right now, am I right? Between um, October and April, yes, absolutely. Some mountain passes, you can certainly get a ticket if you only have uh, um, uh, summers on. Uh, mud and snow, again, it's dependent on the highway. Um, so, you know, preparation is key. See where we're going, plan your trip, and make sure you have um, the, the suitable tires for that location. Preparation is key, and we're talking with Josh Smythe at BCAA. 
in terms of uh, those people that run into uh, difficulties during the uh, holiday weekend travel in the car, uh, what does BCAA end up seeing the most of? Uh, is it gas problems or is it uh, uh, tire blowouts? Uh, what's what's the big uh, thing for the holidays? Well, there's a myriad of things that can occur. You know, things uh, often go left from center or, you know, in an unexpected fashion. I don't I don't have the logistics and what the long, long weekends might bring. Um, just more of the usual, um, you know, so everything kind of ramps up a little bit. A little bit of extra gas calls, a little few extra tire calls. It, it just, everything amplifies a little bit. And it's Bruce Claggett filling in on the Mike Smith Show this morning. Happy Good Friday to you. What's going on on the downtown east side? Certainly not safe, uh, according to many. A third hypodermic needle attack uh, of late. And some people are raising questions about safety and what can be done on the downtown east side. Uh, Global News' Jordan Armstrong actually talked to a retiree who just moved there from Los Angeles. And he said this. More or less safe than downtown Los Angeles? Oh, less safe. Why do you Definitely say so? less safe. Well, you just walk down East Hastings and, I mean, it just goes on and on. Less safe than parts of Los Angeles? That's not the Vancouver I know and love. And certainly a bit of an issue for those who want to feel safe walking around the downtown east side, a beautiful area. Uh, You know, it really is an historic area that has some problems that just continue when we're dealing with uh, things like needle attacks on the downtown east side. Vancouver Police Sergeant Steve Addison joins us. Uh, Tell us about these needle attacks. Hey, Bruce. Yeah, this is the incident, that latest incident happened on April 10th, and it's the third time since November where we've had um, random, um, unprovoked attack on somebody who was walking down the street. Um, in the latest incident, we incident we had a, a man who was just walking to work uh, before 7 o'clock on April 10th when he was at around Hastings in Columbia, which is right in the heart of the downtown east side there, and somebody came up to him and, and stabbed him in the leg with a needle uh, and then left. Um, as I say, this is the third time this has happened since November. It's troubling. It's concerning. It's something that I, I've never seen before. Um, perhaps what makes it um, the most uh, bizarre and troubling is that it, they, there don't appear to be any links between these three cases. Um, they're all individual cases. Um, it would probably be easier to explain if there was one person that was doing this. But in these three cases, I should just say these are three cases that have been reported to us. And we, I say that because we know that so much crime in the downtown east side and in the city in general that just goes unreported. Um, it would almost be easier to explain if they were linked. In, the, in these three cases, uh, they most definitely appear to be isolated. Isolated and not linked. So just yeah. to recap that, uh, just for our way of thinking, we're talking about three different suspects potentially? Yeah, So the, and we've made arrests in the first two cases. So I'll just recap. The first case occurred in October. We had a 23-year-old woman who was, she worked in the downtown east side. She was on her coffee break. She was leaving a coffee shop near Abbott and Pender when uh, a woman uh, approached, stabbed her in the leg. Um, 
she was heads up. She called police right away. We were able to identify a suspect, and a 35-year-old woman is, has been charged with aggravated assault in that case. Um, the second incident that was reported to us happened in March, and um, very similar circumstances. 41-year-old woman walking near Maine and Pender for no apparent reason, completely unprovoked, completely random. Um, a person stabbed her in the leg. Again, she called the police right away. Um, she kept an eye on the suspect, and that allowed our officers, we have lots of police officers who work in the neighbourhood, um, that allowed our, our officers to enter the area and arrest 27-year-old suspect. That person, too, has been charged with uh, with an assault. Uh, in this latest incident, uh, it may be a little bit more challenging. There was a bit of a time delay in, in having it reported to us, and we've done all the usual investigative steps that we do. We've looked for witnesses, we've looked for video. Uh, at this point, we haven't been able to identify the suspect. So um, we're asking anybody who is in the area who might have seen something, um, who might have seen this interaction to uh, to please uh, give us a call uh, to let us know if they have any information because it's concerning and we'd like to know uh, we'd like to know more and we'd like to identify the person who's responsible for this. Sergeant Steve Addison with the Vancouver uh, Police Department. Sergeant, um, the third one was also a woman that was attacked. No, it was a man uh, who was walking to work um, early in the morning on April tenth. So you have two women, one man, any commonality? Uh, are these people uh, that are, um, and I'm in this case not talking about the suspects, I'm talking about the victims. Are they uh, known in the area? Do they live in the area? I'm just trying to figure out how you could have, over a period of time, three attacks with hypodermic needles uh, from three different suspects from three people that don't seem connected. Uh, this must be just baffling for you. It's, it's certainly something that I, I haven't seen before um, in in my career as a police officer. And as I say, it's troubling because they are not connected and it would be easier to explain if they were connected. Um, in these cases, they're, they're, they're random uh, and they're not connected. So, um, you, know, you know, we've talked a lot about uh, the rise in these um, random and unprovoked attacks that have occurred throughout the city. And it's not just in the downtown east side. Uh, it's really um, throughout mostly the north end of the city, including the downtown core. Um, we're seeing um, multiple cases a day where, where people are, um, are being assaulted in various forms by people they don't know um, for no apparent reason. Um, we're making success. We're arresting people. We're identifying offenders. And um, in these cases, the, the, in, in each of these cases in the downtown east side, we have victims who, uh, who did the right thing. Um, they reported these incidents to the police that allowed us in the first two cases to quickly identify and arrest the suspects. And we're hoping to do the same in, in the most recent case. And we just continue to implore people, uh, if you're the victim of, of crime, if you have information about a crime, um, please call us because um, we want, it, you know, our job is public safety. The downtown east side in particular uh, does have a number of troubles. It is a challenging neighborhood. There are a lot of vulnerable people who live in that neighborhood and, and we're working hard to keep them safe. And we rely on people in that neighborhood to, to call us if they're victims, to call us if they have information so that we can uh, identify people who are committing crimes and hold them accountable. Sergeant, uh, 30 seconds or less. Uh, what do, what, do you need for resources, anything from uh, Vancouver police side, or is this uh, not a resource issue? It's something much bigger. Well, we're always stretched thin. We're doing everything we can with the uh, available resources uh, that we have. 
uh, whether it's on the front lines or in the investigations division. But we, we are stretched thin. Um, the bottom line is we need people to, to contact us quickly when they have information. We're having success in identifying uh, these people, um, but community safety, the shared responsibility, uh, we need everybody to step up, keep calling us, uh, keep doing the right thing, um, and uh, we'll, we're hoping to, to keep making gains here. Bruce Claggett in for Mike Smith. It was just over five years ago that the city of Vancouver saw the completion of its first ever temporary modular housing building. That is uh, to provide rapid social and supportive housing for people who are either homeless or in risk of being homeless. That was back in 2017. The municipal government opened its first modular project right next to or adjacent to the SkyTrain station over at Maine and uh, Science World. And now we're into 2022. Is it a solution? Are these temporary modular housing buildings really all that temporary? What are we looking at? Vancouver City Councillor Sarah Kirby-Young, thank you for joining us on a good Friday. Uh, Tell us, for the uninitiated, what is temporary modular housing, first of all? Good morning, Bruce, um, and thanks for having me. Um, Temporary modular housing um, came uh, kind of into the mix, as you said, in late 2017 when the provincial government announced $66 million of funding towards the first units. And temporary modular housing was seen as a way to utilize modular construction um, that could deliver homes in a, much more quickly in a turnkey fashion uh, to get people with a roof over their head much faster than traditional building techniques. And at the time, it was thought that this was a, a way to kind of address the immediacy of some of the homelessness and housing crisis issues um, in a quicker to faster and a, and a less expensive way. I think over time, we're finding that the units were not as inexpensive as was first thought. Um, and we haven't yet, and we have to start asking the questions, had the conversation around now that some of these um, terms are coming up, where do we move people and is it the most cost-effective way to deliver housing? Cost-effective, and uh, is it a direction we want to go in the future? What's your gut feeling based on what you've seen since 2017? Uh, well, my feeling is that the unit, the cost per unit is not as inexpensive as it was thought to be. You're still looking at hundreds of thousand dollars per unit, uh, which is the case when you're building um, longer-term housing. Um, I think the city has a role to play in expediting housing, and certainly we do prioritize getting social housing through the permitting process. Um, but my fear is also that if you go there for five years, 10 years, sometimes there's an option to extend that for 15 years, how many other um, folks could you have housed on that site if you had more density? Because typically these are low-rise buildings of a, a single story, potentially a couple of stories at most. Um, without elevators, you're not, you're not supporting accessibility or density on the site, and you're tying up that land for a period of time. I think what we don't know yet, and my sense is that it's going to prove to be more difficult and more expensive to move the units um, than we might have anticipated. So it certainly filled a need. It's been really great in terms of the quality of the units. They're self-contained. Uh, they have kitchens and bathrooms. The 94% of the people um, survey show remain housed um, after being uh, given one of these units, which is fantastic. Um, but I suspect that we need to look at potentially still utilizing modular construction. That could be an option, but going taller um, and putting an elevator in and comparing and contrasting that with the cost of regular construction. Why was it ever thought that in a city you would have low rises, especially in an area that's got, um, 
well, a demand on uh, on even the price of land in all areas of the city. Uh, was that just a cost saving or is that the design of these? I think it was really honestly, <coughs> sorry, excuse me. I think it was really born out of a desire for speed um, to really have a humanitarian response to the homelessness crisis. Um, and I think it was also an opportunity to test out sort of a new building style and get a sense of it. I think, though, what we're seeing, and as you pointed out, we have increasingly fewer and fewer sites um, and a lot of pressure on those sites. And so what we're starting to see is utilization of industrial land that is also really important in terms of supporting an economy. You know, if people are, don't have uh, good employment or um, then that leads to poverty and that leads to homelessness. Um, but I think that sort of the notion around highest and best use of that land wasn't as much part of a conversation um, as it was really around what's the quickest way that we can get roofs over people's heads. How quickly do these go up? Uh, they can go up in a number of months once sites identified and permitted. Um, in terms of the off-site build, that can happen really quickly or take a bit longer if you're looking at doing doing it with elevators. I remember in, um, before I got on city council, I was working for a hotel company, and uh, it's quite interesting to see the applications of the modular technology because there was a new hotel that we um, built in the Okanagan um, actually for commercial use to be a hotel property, and it was done inside of about six months. Um, so they really can be um, quite quick in terms of realizing, you know, opening, giving somebody that key and opening their front door. Vancouver City Councillor Sarah Kirby-Young, and we'll take uh, some of your calls and your ideas on this. You can call us at 604-280-9898 after the break. Uh, Councillor, you mentioned the Okanagan as being an area. What about other cities? Are they moving to this or are they um, other cities or areas? Uh, I guess when we talk the Okanagan, you mean Kelowna. But uh, are other cities moving away from this idea now, or are they moving to it? Is it outdated? What's uh, what's your feel? Well, certainly, I mean, I think Vancouver-led, and we had some of the first ones here. You are seeing um, them coming up into other cities. But I, I think that the conversation really needs to shift around longer-term permanent housing, because we're, otherwise it becomes a checkerboard in terms of how you're trying to move people around and across different amounts of land. There's only so much city land in other cities. When you get into utilizing private land, there's other considerations. So um, I think that we really want to have that conversation around how do you evaluate the success of this? And some of it should be the ability for it to shift um, as well as could we house more people through um, traditional building mechanisms, for example. Okay, those traditional building mechanisms, uh, are they going to be approved uh, that quickly by city council? Um, if you're looking at something going up more than three stories, and I guess three stories is really the mark we're talking about for these temporary ones. So if you want to go right up into the air, uh, are you? Um, is the city of Vancouver able to uh, get that done as quickly? Well, yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. The onus is on the cities to fast-track social housing as a key priority um, and to improve our permitting processes overall, which have been criticized fairly uh, for being too slow um, in the city of Vancouver. And that's a big topic of conversation now, and I've been pushing for permitting reform to move that forward. But I do think that we really need to simplify our our approval processes to get housing into the market in general. Um, And that's really important for rental housing as well. And it's Bruce Claggett in for Mike Smith on your Good Friday. We've been talking about the City of Vancouver's challenge with uh, homelessness and the temporary modular homes as a possible solution being around since 2017. Uh, But is it really a solution at all? 
Do you view this as an alternative to allowing people to sleep in the parks? Would love to hear some of your opinions. If you would, 604-280-9898. 604-280-9898. And our, we've been talking with uh, Vancouver City Councilor Sarah Kirby-Young. And, uh, Councillor, it is uh, something that we have right now in the city. Uh, do you know how many of these uh, exist? Yeah, we have 663 units right now um, in the city of Vancouver, spread across a number of sites from the east side to the west side. And uh, I think there's a low of about 39 units on some sites and a high of 98 units um, on some of the densest, the, uh, the highest uh, number of units um, in terms of one location. Joel in Vancouver, uh, what do you think? Is it a solution? Is it something you'd like to see? Uh, yes, it would be a solution. I've uh, I've watched a documentary of um, and of uh, in L.A. where they have these modular housings and uh, it's controlled by the state or county or whatever they call it down there. And the people that are that war vets or people that lost jobs, they've and homeless, they live in these uh, modular housing. And then the the city itself, they have these empty lots where people have RVs and minivans or whatever, and they they let up these people use it for uh, the people that uh, live in these RVs on these lots, and it's controlled by the uh, by the county or state, whatever they call it down there, and the city, and they have security where there's no drugs and stuff going on, and it's all controlled. And where you don't have RVs and minivans parked all over the city, and it would be a good idea for the city of Vancouver to have a, like a big empty lot, so where the RVs and whatnot can park there, and uh, it would help like people, you know, uh, get jobs, like living in these uh, um, modular housing, and get jobs and move out of there and buy into a place or rent or whatever, right? And and like I seen the one in LA, there was a, there was a woman that was living in a caravan, and she was going to work every day, and she was going into this empty parking lot with those RVs and that, and she was, uh, you know, she was trying to find a better job, but it was sad that she was living in a in a minivan. Thanks, Joel. Uh, Sarah Kirby Young, uh, what do you think is uh, is that a viable option for Vancouver? Well, I think uh, what Joe's referring to and, and what he's describing is sort of this concept of the hidden homeless. Sometimes you see people that might be living out of their vehicle, a car, RV, they're couch surfing, and um, it's heartbreaking to see that. Um, this is something that has come up and been a conversation at City Council. We also did recently approve a pilot for a tiny homes village um, to try one of those for the first time, uh, which have also proven to be used in other cities and have been very cost-effective. Um, in conjunction, actually, on one of the temporary modular housing sites so they could act, have access to the kitchen facilities and the bathrooms, but just to give people somewhere to sleep and, as the caller is saying, to try to ladder people to into those first steps uh, towards getting into a permanent and stable housing situation. Dean in Vancouver, what do you think? Uh, great show. Thanks for having me on. Um, I hear uh, Sarah's concern, and uh, just as a resident of Vancouver, I think that the temporary module housing is a good idea. What I see in possibility in the future, and that might be with a partnership with Ministry of Tourism, is that we're probably going to need more hostels for people who travel to Canada, uh, more places that uh, we could use as, uh, as uh, you know, hotels, 
for people to stay and to enjoy the province. And that might be what the long-term solution is for some of the modular housing, is that we turn it over into the tourism realm once people move, or hopefully they are successful in, in getting better housing. Bit of an interesting idea. Thanks, Dean. Uh, Councillor, is that even uh, possible? When we talk about temporary, what makes these outside of being three stories high in a city that should be more than three stories? But what makes this temporary? Can they be turned into hostels? That's actually a really interesting idea. Um, And I spent years in the tourism sector. I was the director of marketing for Destination Vancouver for a number of years. And one of the challenges we also have in our city is a shortage of hotel rooms, which was well documented even before COVID. And so we have similar challenges in tourism that we do in housing that because of a shortage, the hotel rooms we have are becoming so expensive and it becomes prohibitively costly to visit the city. And that's not what we want. You also have events sometimes where you flex significantly where you have more people coming in for large events like FIFA. Summertime is um, really busy in terms of high demand and occupancy. So it would be interesting to provide them for alternative uses because where we have a gap also in the hotel industry is in more reasonably reasonably priced hotel rooms. Um, I think there's no reason why they couldn't be utilized for that. I think it just requires a change of use on the part of the city in terms of zoning. Um, But again, uh, it would it would sort of be a temporary addition to the hotel stock versus a long-term solution. Um, but I think flexibility is key. Alternative types of housing, uh, temporary housing, uh, is something that Vancouver has been dealing with. Uh, some other jurisdictions and areas also have been dealing with it. Uh, Surrey is one of them. Mike, you're in Surrey. What do you think? Well, what I what I see uh, happening, and maybe we're missing it here, is that the whole idea is to make them temporary, and the whole idea is also to use vacant land that's not being used currently. If you watch what happened in Surrey with two or three of these temporary two-story buildings were that they had a piece of property that was being developed. There was about a two-year wait for all the city of Surrey to go through their processes, and so they took and they built a modular uh, homeless shelter using uh, basically the ATCO trailer style, and they were put up, and they were there for two years, helped a lot of people out. But that land is expensive, and land is the big issue. So then they would t- they when that uh, little area was ready to be developed, those trailers came off, and the same occurred uh, just off 106. And so it really it's dealing with the land. So I think the city of Vancouver needs to take the same approach. You've got land that could take up to three to five years before they can actually build on it. It's sitting there vacant. Go to the developer and say, let's put some temporary housing on here. Uh, you know, in year four, we're going to have to take it down, but it's meant to be temporary anyway. And I think they could do that and maybe make it a rapid response. Some developer's got a big piece of land that's going to sit vacant for two years, cut him a break somewhere, and uh, put up a two-story building. I think to think about making it a hotel or making it more permanent in Vancouver is not going to happen. The land is just too expensive. It's, uh, you can't take a piece of property in downtown Vancouver and put a two-story wooden temporary housing on it. It's just not, uh, not going to happen. It won't last long. So. Thanks, Mike. Uh, yeah, it's interesting. I know the one in Surrey that uh, you're talking about, and uh, you can see it actually uh, from King George or, or from the SkyTrain uh, uh, line. And it's really, uh, to me, it always strikes me as something that looks a whole bunch more like um, portables for a high school. And uh, it really gives me a feeling that it's extremely temporary. Um, 
Very quickly, uh, Sarah Kirby Young, Vancouver City Councillor, uh, just summing it up in 30 seconds or less. Uh, do you think that uh, we're close to a solution here in Vancouver? I think we still have a lot of work to do. I think that the, the amount of home, people that we have homeless every year, about uh, 2,000, has not changed uh, with the temporary modular program, but arguably it could be higher without it. And it has provided a lot of dignity for people um, in terms of being able to have somewhere to uh, not sleep on the street and to call home. But I think that we need to look towards, towards what the next phase Indeed. is. Indeed. Uh, 